In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The number is 17,487. That is not the number of tweets that Donald Trump has sent out since he took office. It is not the number of angels who can dance on the head of a pin, in case you were wondering. It actually refers to the number of strips that Charles Schultz penned in his decades-long run of that comic strip, Peanuts, 17,487. Now, that's a body of work. But here's the interesting thing about that large number. In not a single one of them, stretching however many decades that was, the number of squares he had to draw, the number of thought balloons he had to create, the number of vivid colors he had to represent for every season of life and every circumstance from that motley gang of little kids. In not a single one of those 17,487 strips does Charlie Brown ever kick the football out from Lucy. (laughs) Not a single one. Every single time, flat on his back with the obligatory og and we laugh at that and when we were kids we laughed at that but we know as we age there is something to that there's a metaphor somewhere inside of there that this life in many respects and at many moments though it varies in degree according to the moment we're in there's an og written over our heads And there's a sense in which life feels like you have tried and missed and it's been pulled out from under you again. Am I right? It's December 23rd. It's two days before Christmas. I I shudder to even ask the question, how many of you are weary? Yeah, and the question is why? I, I know the pace of the season of Advent and and Christmas, it, it, it goes into a higher gear in many respects. That might make you weary. But you also might be weary because you feel like you're running to obtain something that you're not really quite sure what it is, but whatever it is, you know you're not getting there. And that makes you weary too. Or whatever Charlie Brown felt or whatever you're feeling right now that makes you weary It may have just some sort of deeper weariness about it, and you just can't put your finger on it. You really can't describe it. It's this great irony that we just heard in the Advent reading from Gerg and Kate to tell us what the angels say. Peace among men with whom God is pleased. Peace to you. And yet, oh boy, peace is pretty elusive. It's why there's a comedian that said a few years ago that you probably heard him say it. He says, everything is amazing. Why is everybody unhappy? We're all weary. And we're all wondering if that weariness will give way. And when we're weary, when we're unsettled, when we find ourselves, just like Charlie Brown, flat on our back again, we turn to any number of things to find just something to break through. And one of the things that we do is we turn to story. We turn to stories that, that maybe suggest something is different. That there is maybe a reason for hope in this life. Maybe that there's a reason still to love. And what we've done during Advent, for those of you who are just joining us, who are in from out of town, we welcome you. But we've been studying and listening to the little book of Ruth. It's an ancient story. 
It's a story that connects us to the storyline of Jesus, but it is a story, as we've said, who also connects us to the very heart of who Jesus is. And even though it never mentions anything like that, it never speaks of Messiah, it never speaks of angels or a heavenly host, it does speak of rest. Because it begins in a world of great unrest. A family who is in flight, a family who suffers loss, a family who is in the midst of great uncertainty. And through a number of remarkable events and some pretty brazen, if not brash, choices, where we are in that story today brings to the possibility that the family who has suffered so great loss, a greater loss than anything Charlie Brown ever experienced in those 17,400 strips, they are on the cusp of potentially finding a rest that they never bargained for. And we want to hear that story because we need to hear that story. And where we are here in chapter 4, we're on the cusp of a perhaps coming to reality. Just like last week, we're going to let voices from the text come alive and tell that story. So reprising his role as Boaz, Ed Mathis is here. <laughs> and, and demonstrating his great versatility in voice acting, Ben, who last week played the foreman of the Reapers, this week plays the role of the nameless next of kin. And just like last week, you have a part in playing. Last week, only, you only had four words. This week, you have a whole sentence. You had to work your way up. Today's the day. You are together the elders and townspeople at the city gate in Bethlehem. <gasps> I shall narrate. These two men will play those parts. And when the moment comes, don't miss it. It's not a long chapter. So you know what? If you wouldn't mind standing to play your part with great vim and vigor. <clears throat> Ruth, chapter 4. From verses 1 to verses 13. Here we go. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer... Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own, my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. He drew off his sandal. 
And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, This is the dramatic word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, boys. Say it with me. Ephratha. Ephratha. Worthily are you who come from the... It's cool. It's cool, man. I know. Like It took me four years of seminary before I could pronounce that, so... I I give you cred. I give you credit. There are many themes that you have heard in this story, and we could take any one of them and tease them out and find the thread as it runs through all short four chapters. But there is one theme that you've already been introduced to here that I think is the most prominent of the things that we might hear, and that is the theme of rest. Because in chapter 1, if you are just joining us, this family, of whom Naomi is the matriarch, enters into a great season of unrest. They flee to a country that most Israelites would have been scandalized to hear. They flee to Moab to find bread because in their land of Bethlehem, the land known as the city of bread is ironically without bread. And so they flee and they are full of unrest. And when they get to Bethlehem, um, rather than when they get to Moab and at least find bread, then they careen into tragedy. Her husband Elimelech dies. Her boys marry two Moabite women, scandalous to an Israelite audience, and then those two boys die. And so that family, in search of rest, only finds a deeper, deeper unrest. And with these two widowed daughter-in-laws, now the widowed Naomi hears that Bethlehem has got bread again, and so she sets off with them. And then she realizes, these girls, girls, you've got to stay. You, there's, there's no hope for you to find a family or a future back in Israel. They're going to look at you with sideways eyes. You don't want to go there. Stay where you know. Stay in your mother's house. And what does Naomi do? She prays for them. She prays that they might find rest in their own home, in their own land. And one of those daughters-in-law realizes that that may be the case and so she sets off and stays at home. But there's another one. Her name is Ruth, this Moabite woman who has been smitten by God and says, and says unto Naomi, don't, don't urge me to leave. I'm with you. I'm so with you. I'm with your people. I'll live where you live. But you know what? My God is your, your God is my God. And so Ruth chooses to be a source of rest for Naomi. And then in chapter 2, Naomi is, accedes to Ruth's request that she might go and help find grain for this family in some field, in some field where somebody might offer them favor. And though she goes and though she risks, there she finds favor from somebody named Boaz. 
who happens to be a relative of that family. And Boaz hears of all that Ruth has done and all that she's left behind and now what she's venturing on behalf of Naomi and not just for herself. And he shows her favor. And he prays that God will reward her, that God reward her for having taken refuge in him. And then last week in chapter 3, with Ruth having benefited from the favor of Boaz and and Ruth extending not only satisfying food and grain and, and help, not only to Ruth, but perhaps to Naomi too, Naomi hatches this almost reckless plan. And that chapter begins with Naomi saying, Will I not find rest for you, O Ruth? And that rest is not just grain. It's something more. It's a future. And with a bold, if not reckless decision, she urges Ruth to offer herself as a bride to this Boaz. And last week we heard that that bizarre story of Ruth going and laying down at Boaz's feet while he's asleep and uncovering his feet until he wakes up in a start with chilly feet. And she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Be my redeemer. Cover the wings of your garment over me as God has with Israel at a time when Israel was in need of love. And Boaz says, I will. But there's one hitch. There's somebody else who has first position in this responsibility. And so here in chapter 4, that detail is worked out. It is so unfamiliar to us. These categories are so bizarre to us. And for some of you, you might be totally off-put by the entirety of this message so far. But let me put it in context for you. When we hear in chapter 4, Boaz has gathered... He's gathered at the city gate of the town where the the seat of government is, if you will, where all the transactions that needed to be ratified in a public way would be set forth and sealed. And he's there waiting for this nameless next of kin, this first redeemer, this this person who is a closer relative in the family. And again, we're all asking ourselves, what is the deal here? Why would Boaz or this other guy who's got no name, why are they involved in this at all? Before there was ever a government safety net, Embedded, encoded into the law of God was a safety net of family. And if you were married and your husband died and you were a widow, what was embedded in the law was your dead husband's brother would come to your aid, would come to your assistance, would come and render you what you needed because with that husband being gone so much in accordance with that economic system and those structures as it were, you needed assistance. And that brother would be responsible for doing for you what that husband could not now that he was dead. And in a situation like that, Boaz has been approached by Ruth at the urging of Naomi to stand in and do that. To buy this parcel of land that it would be retained in Elimelech's name, but more so, to take Ruth as a wife and to bring forth issue from her so that that land might persist in the name of Elimelech who is dead, that there might be, if you will, life beyond the grave for that family. Look, and you you hear that and you think, that's kind of nuts, right? Yeah, until you walk out and you go to downtown Asheville and you see the, the monument with everybody's name on it. Until you hear people say as they go through college, I want to make a name for myself. It's not weird for 
humans to want to see something go on, a legacy continue even into death. And surely that is what is at work here. And what Boaz and this other guy potentially are serving as is this idea of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, who would be tasked with the opportunity and the responsibility to stand in for their dead relative. And it would cost them. And in that moment, the kind of rest that Boaz or this next of kin are offering is the offer of land. Because in that day, it would not be until the Middle Ages, folks, before wealth would be in anything other than land. Today, wealth has everything to do with what data you own. Up until the 1300s, the wealth you had was, had everything to do with the land that you possessed. And then it became money, and now it's data. But in that day, you didn't have land, you didn't have nothing. That redeemer, whether it be Boaz or this other individual, would buy the land and allow Naomi to retain it, but would also take Ruth as a wife, that an heir might come forth and that land would stay in the name of that family. And that, to Naomi and Ruth, would be a deeper kind of rest. Deeper than just knowing where your next meal would come from. Deeper than just knowing that your family would be present unto your condition. This was setting aside, through the assistance of a relative, a kind of hope for a future. And we hear this, and we think, what a bizarre story. Or at least just really unfamiliar. Because, yeah, we, we still think about um, uh, buying and selling of land. And, and, and yes, we, we, we're concerned about, you know, food and uh, how much it costs and, um, you know, things like that. But, but what they're facing, it's, it's so removed from us. But, but folks and, and visitors and welcome guests, I might say to you that there is more resonance between the sort of desperation they feel and what you and I feel perennially regularly we all know what it means to face loss there's a lot of people in this room that are facing that today and it's wearisome and you don't know how the world will ever be the same again because it won't and you don't know how to fight off the temptation to be a really bitter person and you're not sure if you can ever hope again much less love with any steadfastness so when Naomi loses a lot, and then when Ruth loses a lot, you know what? You, you know that experience also, because you know what sort of unrest accompanies loss. But you also know a kind of unrest that accompanies thinking about death. This week, I told my kids what song I want played or sung at my funeral. They went, what? I just... On that song, I know for sure. That's the one I want. Because when you're young, you don't ever think about that stuff, right? And then you get older, you have more thoughts about that. And when then you get really older, you think like, oh, 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 there's more life behind me than there was in front of me. And, and so you think about thoughts about death. You wonder what death is going to feel like. And you, wanna, and, 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 and you think about what will it be like to leave behind everybody you love. And you think about what, is, what awaits me at that moment. And, and look, we're in a church, so we have a story that speaks to those questions, but we still wrestle with them. And in that thinking and in that wrestling, when we will at least indulge the thought at all, there is a kind of unrest. And Naomi and Ruth both had to face it. 
in different ways for different reasons. But in that thinking about death, there's an unrest. Naomi and Ruth both dealt with loss and in that unrest. Naomi and Ruth both dealt with thoughts about death in their unrest. But I will tell you, if you want to just focus in on Ruth's story for just a moment, there is one other thing that you and I struggle with that gives us the most unrest for the most of our life. As we've said before, they keep telling us in the story, the narrator keeps harping on the fact that Ruth is from Moab. Like, like we got that, right? Why does he keep saying that? And that is because Moab and Israel, they're not going out together. They've been warring with each other and talking smack with each other for a very long time. And so anybody from Moab and an Israelite eye, you're an outsider. You're an other. You are someone I don't give the time of day to. You're the one I lock my doors for. You're the one I step to the other side of the street for. And for Ruth, therefore, to say, Naomi, I'll go back with you there to Israel. What she's just signed up for is the existence of one who feels like an outsider. The one who will be looked on, at least at first, with great suspicion. Friends, maybe that's not your experience. For some of you in the room, that might be your experience. But I will tell you, there is one common experience to most of humanity that, that connects in some way with what it means to feel like an outsider, and that is the feeling of shame. Shame is that thing in us that grips us, that seizes us, that we don't know what to do with. And last week you heard me quote a psychiatrist by the name of Kurt Thompson. who He's the guy that said, everybody comes into this world looking for someone who's looking for them. But in a book he wrote called The Soul of Shame, he summarized for us what shame really is. Shame, and I want to get his definition correct, is it declares some version of this idea that I'm not enough, there is something wrong with me, that I'm bad, or that I don't matter. Embedded in any of those thoughts is something deep, and that thing is shame. And those thoughts drive feelings, and sometimes our feelings of shame create new thoughts, and then it becomes this awful loop, and it builds on one another, and all of us are infected with that at times, or afflicted by that, and we are wearied by that. Shame goes everywhere. Shame connects us to everything. And, and some of us are all too aware of those feelings. We know exactly what it feels like to have those thoughts. And others of us, you know, there's this deeper unrest in us that maybe we never located in that place, but if we thought about it long enough, yeah. Like, shame lives there. And you just never really thought about it. And it steals something from us the more we linger in it. And the worst thing about shame is this. The most insidious thing, the most awful thing about feeling shame is that sometimes not only can it deplete us, it can actually animate us to all kinds of action. It can fuel and motivate us to do all sorts of things that we think are wonderful things when actually it's shame that's motivating it. And so Kurt Thompson tells all sorts of stories of people, for instance, who went and sought after excellence in everything they did, not because they just thought the work deserved excellence, but because they were trying to flee this little thing that was following at their heels that they couldn't put a face to or a name on, and that was shame. Shame animates as it steals. It is like an addictive substance that that will that will grip you and empower you in the moment and yet devastate you on the inside. 
Ruth walking into Israel probably felt at some moment in time a certain measure of shame. Not because of anything that she had done, but just the way she'd been seen. And you and I go through this life and of the most pervasive things that might take our rest away and make us weary in the inside is the sense of shame. And so whether it's the the experience of loss or the fear of death or the poison of shame, we are all suffering at times, if not all the time, from unrest. And what we learn as we hear their story, as we've traipsed through this short book, is there is a rest that we would pay just about anything to have. We might make even brash choices like Naomi urging Ruth to go offer herself as a bride to some guy that she's only known for a few months. We might do just about anything. Because that season of unrest, that experience of unrest, that follows the plot line of everyone's story. And it's full of tension and crises and maybe um, relief for a while, but it, it, it assumes its head again. And you know what? That, that plot line finds its way and its tension also in this story too. Because for Boaz in chapter 4, he steps up and sure enough, this, this nameless next of kin guy that Ben read so aptly, he happens to walk up there at the city gate where everybody's watching. And Boaz has assembled everybody and he goes, sit tight, here, I'm here. And if he comes, we'll talk about it. And so up he walks. This guy has no face. He has no name. And Boaz says, hey, sit down, sit down for a second. Elders, townspeople, sit down. I got a story to tell. I got something to do here. I got a business to transact. And at that moment, the next of kin says, all right, I'll hear you out. He sits down and Boaz says, here's the deal. Naomi's got a parcel of land. Husband's dead. She came back from Moab. She's here. She's got to have that land bought or she's going to lose it. So you are the person in first position, according to the law. You're the closest relative. It's your time to step up and take care of business Will you do it? Will you buy it? And the nameless next to kin says, I'm in. I'm in. And everybody reading the story goes, no! We don't want you to do it. We want Boaz to do it. And now we're all feeling like Charlie Brown again. Ugh! The story that we wanted doesn't be the story that unfolds. And now we're flat on our back again. Because sure enough, this guy, who we don't even know, is just kind of come on the scene. I'll redeem it. I'll take it. I'll do that. I'll pay for the land. And Boaz says, okay, great. Um, one other thing. Sorry, <laughs> slipped my mind. When you buy Naomi's land, you also will take Ruth as a wife. But you may not have to love her like the wife that you chose to marry, but it will be your responsibility as a member of this clan to help bring forth an heir through her so that this land and that dead man's legacy might be retained. Is that okay? Nameless next to Ken says, oh, <laughs> wow. Um, you put it that way, that's, that's a bridge too far. That's, that's maybe a little bit too rich for my blood. And he says, that will actually impair my inheritance. And he doesn't really explain what he means by that. It, it, it may mean that... Uh, you know, if he's going to buy the land, okay, he's going to be out the money it took to buy the land. But then if an, ish, if an heir comes through them, then that heir will get the land. So not only has he paid for the land, now he loses the land and the money. Uh, yeah, uh, no gain. 
right? It, it may be that, that whatever heir comes through him and Ruth, that you know, now he's got to spread out more of his inheritance to more kids, right? More kids, less money for each kid. That's the way it works. Nope, that'll impair my inheritance. Or he may be a bigot. He may realize, I take this Moabite woman as a wife, I may lose more than financial capital. I may lose a lot of social capital. No. And the narrator doesn't cast him as an evil soul. We don't know. All we know is that he was not up to the task. And so he defers. And there's something to that that kind of feels like a metaphor for life. And what that is is this. This one who seemed like the most logical choice to provide Naomi and Ruth this rest, the one who was closest at hand, the one who was most readily available to do what was asked of him. He was not up to the task. And you know what that reminds me of? All sorts of things in our life. We're walking around with a bunch of nameless next of kins thinking it will bring us rest when those things are not up to the task. All sorts of good things, things that we might properly delight in, things that we might be thankful for, that just can't do the job. Whatever skills you have, they're great, and they should be celebrated and refined. And whatever maybe a career develops out of that, fantastic. And, and whatever affirmations or accolades or acceptance that, that comes as a result of you working hard and honing that craft, all of that's good stuff. You should celebrate it. It's not up to the task of bringing you the rest that you need. The friendships that you develop, the spouse that you might find, the kids that might come forth from your love, the students that you might mentor, all of these people with whom you might cultivate a love relationship, wonderful things, delightful things, grateful giving things, life-giving things, they're not up to the task. And I, even as I say that, I think to myself, I cannot imagine my life without my wife. And a lot of you in this room, even this day, are already having to realize what it's like to be without the one that you live for decades. And you think, will there ever be a time to sing again? Those ones we love, those things we cherish, those, those, those skills we hone, we, we love them all and we properly do so. And yet, if we are honest with ourselves, they are not able to give us that rest that we most deeply need, whether it comes to our fear of loss, our fear of death, or the poison of shame. Kids, the sooner you get that, the sooner you will keep from becoming unhinged. The sooner you will learn not to hold so tightly onto the things that you love, the things that you get under that tree or the, or the affirmations that you get as you proceed along in life. The thing that might be closest to hand that you would think would be just perfectly fitted for the giving you that rest, it's just not able. It's not fit to the task. And in this story, that nameless next of kin sort of wanders off into the distance. And if you're an Israelite who's reading that story, you're thinking, good, I'm glad he's gone. Because the last thing that this story is out to tell us here in chapter 4 is this. Yeah, there is a, a deeper rest that we would give just about anything to pay for. And there's all sorts of things in our midst that might logically qualify in our minds as being able to pay it, but which is not up to the task. But there is one who is up to the task. And Boaz steps up and he says, I'll do it. He says, I'll redeem. 
I will pay the price. I will buy the land, but I will also take Ruth as my wife. I will adore her. Jesus tells the story, the parable of the, of the good shepherd, right? And he talks about a hired hand who's there to kind of take care of the sheep. And then he talks about a good shepherd who's also called to do the same. And that hired hand, when it gets dangerous and the wolves go, he flees. Why? Because he's in it for him. Yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll be hired. He'll, he'll get paid his wage. He'll, he'll look to the sheep insofar as it benefits him. But when it ceases to benefit him or when there's more risk of loss than there is of gain, he's gone. Whereas the good shepherd, he's not in it for him. He's in it for those for whom he's been tasked to care of. That's Boaz. I don't care what I lose. I don't care what it costs me. I will be in it for them. I will be in it for Ruth. I will be in it for Naomi. And that is his attempt to bring them a deeper rest. But it is a deeper rest entirely at his cost. He gives himself in love for their good. And he will love them now. And in doing so, he will allow life to persist even for those who have died. Do you see why we might be reading the story at Advent. All Jesus did was at his cost. He entered into our weakness. He entered into exposure. He entered into ridicule. He entered into loss. He entered into danger. He entered into suffering. He entered into death. And everything he did was just like Ruth and just like Boaz with no thought of himself but only of those for whom he'd come. And he didn't hesitate. And he paid with what he had. And when Jesus comes to us in the flesh in the form of a child and then dies on a cross as a man, he's come to give us a new family and a new future. He's come to give us himself. He's come to give us a new way of thinking about even our own death. But you know what he's mostly given us today? At his cost, he's dispensed with all of our reasons for shame. Because in him, your sin is forgiven. Because in him, you belong to God. Because in him, God never grows weary of caring for you even when you think you wear him out. And it is in Jesus who gives us therefore a whole new motivation to live. Not to flee from a sense of shame that we've got to compensate for, but instead to live out of a sense of gratitude for what is already true of us and what's already been done for us. That's, that's the good news. That's, that's why Christmas is merry. He does all of that to bring us that deeper rest and all at his cost. And that is why we need what W.H. Auden said in the famous poem he wrote at Christmas. He wrote, We who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act? The infinite become a futile fact. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. Ruth and Naomi needed something just short of a miracle, and they got it in Boaz. You and I, if we would think of our loss, our death, and our shame, something differently, we will need a miracle. And in Jesus we have. And you know what? 
That may sound complicated, but it is as simple as a child's story. So simple, this is what Christmas is all about. I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? True, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Seventeen thousand four hundred eighty-seven strips, and in not one of them, except that moment, does Linus drop his blanket. The one thing he thought would hold him near and dear and safe is the one thing that, when he embraced the story and told it, he had the courage to let go of his blanket. The story of Ruth, coupled with the story of Jesus is telling us all, drop your blanket. My wife gave me an early Christmas present last night. It's Linus. And he's dropped his blanket. The gospel, Christmas, is calling us all to drop our blanket. And just as Ruth asked Boaz to ask the Lord to cover you with his garment to cover you with his love, to remind you that he is good. I can't make you believe that. I can only offer you that story and pray that the Spirit of God would confirm to you that it's true. O come, all ye faithless and fearful. O come, all you weary. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. For he shall wrap you in his own and they shall make you and he shall redeem you. And that is why Christmas is merry.